Well, good morning. So today is the Sunday after Ascension, but it's also the seventh Sunday of Easter. And notice that it's the seventh Sunday of Easter, not the seventh Sunday after Easter. Easter, as we've been saying all along, is not a one-day celebration. Rather, Easter Sunday is the kickoff to a 50-day celebration that culminates in Pentecost. Easter is a week of weeks, seven weeks, the great 50 days. So if you haven't put away your Easter decorations yet, good on you. Wait a little longer, keep them out. If you have put away your Easter decorations, go ahead and bring some of those back out. You can even bring out some of the bunnies. We know that God loves bunnies because they are the most zealous and obeying his commandment to be fruitful and <laughs> So bring this back out. Our faith is grounded in history, not myth. It's grounded in sacred history. And this history discloses truth about God and ourselves. But we don't live in the past. Instead, we bring past events of salvation history into the present. We relive them, and we allow their truth, their mystery, and their grace to shape us. So in this time of Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We remember the fear, the surprise, the joy of the first disciples who discovered the empty tomb. This was literally an earth-shaking historical event. But remember, Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn means a title of preeminence, but it also is a title of precedence. He's the first, and there will be many more to come because the family of God is big. So in Easter, we also celebrate the hope of our own resurrection, that one day we will be raised as the sun was on that Sunday long ago. So we've actually almost reached the end of the first half of the church year. The first half of the church year, the time when we commemorate key events in the life of Christ. And this Sunday, actually this last Thursday, was Ascension Day. This is the final event in Christ's first coming, the Ascension, when he is taken up into heaven. Of course, the Ascension is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed, but I wonder if Kelly were to, in preparing the worship guide, if you were to take out that phrase, he ascended, you would never do that, of course. But if you were to do that, would any of us notice? Um, many people have remarked that the ascension has little or no recognition among contemporary Christians. It used to be a high feast in the church calendar, and very few Christians in the West celebrate it today. So maybe next year we can have a big party on Ascension Day. There are some reasons that have been suggested for this neglect. Perhaps part of it is that the Ascension is overshadowed by the resurrection. Certainly the resurrection gets a bit more airtime in the Gospels. Uh, maybe also it's because of the fact that the Ascension is very closely connected to the resurrection. It's part of the glorification of Christ. And in our reading for today from Luke, it almost seems like the resurrection and the ascension happen on the same day. 
We see in Acts that that isn't the case, but it seems to be that way. Or maybe it's simply neglected because it's a bit strange, isn't it, right? Uh, a middle-aged man floating up into the atmosphere like a helium balloon. That's, it, it's, it's a bit strange, especially in our aerospace age, right? Maybe we're not impressed by people being taken up into the atmosphere. That said, if Kevin were to give the benediction on a Sunday when we're not in the pavilion and start floating up into the heavens, I think a lot of people would be impressed. I'd be impressed. <laughs> I don't think Katie would be impressed. It's like, we have three young children. You're not done here yet. And maybe the ascension is neglected too because its implications aren't really clear to us. Maybe we're a bit like the confused Sunday's disciples in Acts 1 who are kind of rubbernecking up into the heavens, peering intently, trying to figure out what's going on. Where did Jesus go and what does it mean? Um, the call up for today says the following. May our hearts and minds also ascend to heaven and with him continually dwell. So that's my hope for this day. That's my hope for this sermon that it'll help us to ascend into the heavens. Even though it's a gray, cool, drippy day, I hope that all of us will become sun-dazed by the glory and splendor of the ascended <laughs> Christ. So what is the significance of the ascension? Let me start with the big idea first, and then I'll kind of fill in the details. If you don't get anything else from the sermon today, get this. The ascension is about the enthronement of Christ. The ascension is about the enthronement of Christ. Other terms are associated with this. Exaltation, glorification, coronation. Remember the prayer that Jesus prays at the end of John? That God would restore the glory that he had with him before the foundation of the world? The ascension is the answer to that prayer. When Christ enters heaven, his supremacy is enshrined. This is a cosmic coronation whereby God confirms Christ's perfect sacrifice and subjects the entire universe to his rule. It's astonishing. And the first indication we get of this glorification in the Acts account of the ascension is the cloud. The cloud. We see that Jesus was lifted up and taken into a cloud out of their sight. Think about the significant of, significance of clouds in the Old Testament. Right? They almost always depict the presence of God. Remember when Israel was leaving Egypt, how did God lead them? With a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Clouds also uh, connote the mystery of God, his impenetrable holiness. And you might recall that uh, when God appears at Sinai and Moses climbs the mountain, a cloud covers the top of Sinai. And then, of course, after the completion of the temple, it says the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Cloud is equated, clouds are equated with glory. When Solomon completes the temple, the cloud of the glory of the Lord also descends. But then we recall in Ezekiel that the cloud leaves the temple. 
when Israel goes into exile. And then in the New Testament, we see the cloud of God's presence at the Mount of Configuration, the Transfiguration. The Father speaks out of a cloud and blesses the Son. The second indication of Christ's glorification in Acts is Peter's Pentecost sermon. Now, I know the Pentecost is not till next week. I don't mean to sneak into Acts 2, but I'm going to do it covertly this morning. What's striking about this sermon that Peter gives is that it's not really about the coming of the Spirit or even about the resurrection of Christ. The focus of Peter's Pentecost Day sermon is the ascension of Christ to the throne, the glorification of Christ. He talks about the exaltation of Jesus of Nazareth. He says he performed mighty works, wonders, signs. He was a man who was crucified, but also a man who God raised up and exalted at his right hand. And of course, we see in this sermon that Peter quotes our psalm for today, Psalm 110. Peter refers to David as a prophet, uh, and he cites this psalm in his sermon because his audience would have been familiar with it. This psalm, incidentally, is the most cited, the most quoted and alluded to psalm uh, in the New Testament. And no wonder, it's one of the most exalted messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And it's the perfect ascension psalm because it proclaims the upshot of the ascension of Christ, that he is installed as king and priest forever. He quotes the first verse, Peter does, of Psalm 110 in his sermon. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. What is this describing? Again, this is describing enthronement. The, the father is inviting the son to sit in the place of honor at his throne. This is what happens when Jesus is taken up into heaven. And we see several striking images here. First of all, the right hand of God. Okay. To be at the right hand of a powerful person is to be in a special place of honor. And the full participation of the risen and ascended Christ in God's honor and glory is emphasized by the fact that he's sitting at God's right hand. And from this position of honor and authority, the Son of Man will return to judge the world. We also see this description that Kevin mentioned at the beginning of the service that his enemies become his footstool. This is an ancient Near East metaphor of absolute victory. All enemies are literally trampled underfoot. And we see that in our epistle reading for today as well, Ephesians 1, he put all things under his feet. We also see something else. Kevin mentioned this as well, preview of the sermon. Um, the son sitting at the right hand of the father gives gifts. He's a gift giver. Notice Ephesians 4, 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. I don't know how you guys do it, but typically when we celebrate Christmas, or birthdays in our home, I like to give the small, if there are multiple gifts, I like to give the little gifts first and kind of save the, the biggest and the best gift for last. Do you guys do anything similar? Maybe, maybe not. Not so with the son. 
That's not how the son does it. While on earth, he gave his own life for us. And when he returns to the father, the first gift that he gives is the Holy Spirit. He pours out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. In the ancient world, the generosity of a king indicated his greatness. And boy, we truly worship a great and generous God. So far, we've been considering the ascension in terms of Christ's uh, deity, his divinity, how he sits at the right hand of the Father, how he's, how he's exalted. His full deity is affirmed. The Lord said to my Lord. That's an affirmation of his deity. He's given all authority, authority that only God can possess. But there's another side to the ascension. There's a human element in the ascension as well. We see something very important in our gospel passage. When Jesus appears to his disciples after the Emmaus Road incident, it's a bit of a shock. Right? The first thing he tells them is not to be afraid. He insists that he is not a spirit or a ghost. And he insists that he is a man. He's a human being. He says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones like me. But then he shows them his hands and his feet, which bear the scars of the crucifixion. And he even eats a piece of broiled fish in their presence to prove to them that he is still Jesus of Nazareth, that he is still one of them. Yes, he's different, but he's still Jesus. I don't know if any of you have uh, heard of the cult Love Has Won or Love Has Won. Love Has Won. Anybody heard of this uh, cult? Um, the full name is the Church Ministry of the Mother of All Creation. Some of you are thinking only in America. <laughs> it's true. This is a small New Age movement with about 50 people led by a woman named Amy Carlson. Amy Carlson goes by the title of Mother God, but some people call her Mama G, or some people just call her Mom. She claims to be about 20 billion years old. And she claims to have birthed all of creation. She says that she's been reinc uh, reincarnated 534 times. And her incarnations include Cleopatra, Joan of Arc, and more recently, Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> she also claims to have been Jesus in one life. And she says that she remembers hanging on the cross. Uh, not surprisingly, her family got Dr. Phil to do a TV intervention last fall. You can see this, uh, but it didn't work, unfortunately. And a few weeks ago, this cult Love Has Won made the news because Colorado po uh, police were searching a mobile home because of a reported death. And when they entered the home, they found a makeshift shrine with Amy Carlson's embalmed remains on the bed. Her corpse was, cocoon was cocooned in a sleeping bag, uh, and well, the sleeping bag had Christmas lights around it, and they even had some glitter on her face. But when the police found her, she was in a state of decay. After this, seven of the cult members were arrested for body tampering and abuse of corpse. Mother God, or Mama G, had become Mummy G. <laughs> Let me tell you another story. <laughs> this 
this one, this one is more familiar, but try to see it with new eyes. The true creator of the universe became incarnate as a man. He lived for 33 years. He touched the lives of many, but he was killed. The Jewish leaders actually feared body tampering. So they pressured Pilate to seal the tomb and to post a guard. Some women who followed him planned to anoint his body with spices and perfume. But when they came to the tomb after the Sabbath, the unexpected happened. You know the rest of the story. And in this case, divine love did win after all. Some of the followers of Amy Carlson have speculated about her next reincarnation. One person has said that maybe she'll be reincarnated as a space alien and step off of a starship. Um, after Jesus died, he was brought back to life, but he was not reincarnated as another human or creature. He came back as himself. He was still Jesus of Nazareth, even though he was thoroughly transfigured. Peter insists on this in his Pentecost sermon. After the resurrection, Jesus remains a human being, though glorified. He did not shed his humanity. He did not lay it aside. He's not a divine shapeshifter. He is eternally human, though fully God. And we see this in the first song in our worship guide. If you have your worship guides handy, turn to the first page. The text is written by Isaac Watt, Hosanna to the Prince of Light. We can see the paradox of the incarnation in the first stanza, the line, the Prince of Light that clothed himself in clay. This is the incarnation. But the clay clothing doesn't end when Christ is taken up to heaven. We see that in the second stanza. See how the conqueror mounts aloft and to his father flies with scars of honor in his flesh and triumph in his eyes. He still bears those scars. He remains distinctly and individually the crucified one. He was recognized by his scars after his resurrection and when he returns one day he will also be recognized by those same scars revelation one behold he is coming with the clouds he's coming back in the same way that he left and every eye will see him even those who pierced him so try to wrap your minds around this the son of god from eternity in the fullness of time took on our humanity and now he is enthroned in heaven and he will keep his humanity forever. Isn't that amazing? Leo the Great, the fifth century uh, Roman bishop put it this way. He said that in the ascension, our humanity was taken up to be with God. Our humanity is in the throne room of God. Leo also said, heaven has the holy body and earth received the Holy Spirit. That's quite an exchange. Now, why is this important? There are many things that we can talk about in terms of application. But one thing that this truth does, Christ's ongoing humanity in heaven, 
is it underlines God's eternal commitment to humanity. God is eternally committed to us. Every time he sees his son's face, he sees us. We are the crowning achievement of his creation. And he sees that in his son. The human race is valuable, eternally valuable in the eyes of God. And not only because we bear the image of God, but also because his son, the second person of the Trinity, one being with the father from eternity came to earth earth as a man. He was fully human and he returned and remains fully human. He's a new Adam. He shows us what humanity is meant to be. And he shows us what redeemed humanity will look like one day. The union of God and humanity in the person of Christ in many ways makes possible the union of heaven and earth that we anticipate. The ascension breaks the barrier between heaven and earth. Athanasius, the church father, said that Christ became what we are, that we might become what he is. This doesn't mean that we become gods. It does mean, though, that we become adopted sons and daughters of God. Paul talks a lot about adoption in Ephesians 1, the inheritance, the riches of his inheritance that we receive in Christ. And he says something amazing at the beginning of chapter 2 in Ephesians. He says, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've been raised up with Christ, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places. The ongoing humanity of Christ has direct bearing on another important aspect of Christ's work at the right hand of the Father. Remember, Psalm 110 does not only describe the coronation of a king, it also describes the anointing of a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews tells us that because of Christ's ongoing humanity, even after he passed through the heavens, he remains a sympathetic high priest because he is fully God, yes, but he is also fully human. No one can condemn us, says Paul in Romans 8, because Christ who is at the right hand of the Father, intercedes for us. And this isn't something that he does from time to time. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he always lives to make intercession. He always lives to make intercession. Maybe he's praying for us right now. So what is our response to all this? First of all, clearly, gratitude and worship. We see that in the last two verses of our gospel reading, the response of the disciples to the ascension. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. The first response must be gratitude and worship. But this also has implications for our everyday lives. We are told to live in a heavenly way because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Seek the things that are above. And Paul goes on to describe what that looks like. In verse 5, he says to put to death 
the earthly things, immorality, evil passion and desire, idolatry. And then in verse 12, he says to put on the heavenly things like clothing, like a garment, compassion, kindness, humility, forgiveness, thankfulness. So the ascension is not pie in the sky doctrine. It's meant to impact every aspect of our lives, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our relationships, everything is to be impacted by this in the same way that Christ is Lord over everything. So again, as the collect says for today, like Christ, may our hearts and minds also ascend to heaven and with him continually dwell. The ascension of Christ should be the greatest of holidays, of holy days. And we need to think, meditate, and pray on the glorious reality of Jesus ascended into heaven. We need to orient our lives to the splendor of his ascension. There's great power and also great comfort in this event. So let's worship and rejoice. Amen.